Chapter 9 of Double Challenge by Jim Gelgard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Black Bear Charges Ted had had an awakening. Four days after he sent Nels to work for the Beamish party, Nels had come back singing their praises in the loftiest tones. They were all gentlemen of the highest order. Nobody cared what he cooked as long as there was plenty of whatever it was. Driving Nels into Lorton, Mr. Strickland had asked him to order groceries and had paid the rather large bill without a murmur. That night, they devoted him the best camp cook they ever saw and given him a ten-dollar tip. Of course, they were a little bit queer. He'd told them his name at least a dozen times, but everybody insisted on calling him Hjalmar. They pronounced it exactly as it was spelled, too. Nels didn't mind, because Hjalmar was certainly a fine old name, but it had taken him almost a day to get used to it. They were wonderful hunters, especially that Mr. Beamish. The first day, he'd shot five grouse, the second seven, and on the two succeeding days, he shot five and seven. That made twenty-three grouse in four days, and he used just thirty-two shells. It must be some kind of record or something. Nels didn't know. However, each day, everyone else in the party had paid Mr. Beamish money. Nels understood if Mr. Beamish scored too many misses, he'd have to pay all the others. Still singing the praises of the Beamish party, Nels hurried off to resume his duties with them. Ted was left to ponder a problem that he had hoped he would never have to face. Too many people, who were too often intelligent people, took game laws far too lightly. They shot what they wished when they wished to, and few of them ever thought that they were doing anything wrong. Actually, in every sense of the word, they were thieves. Bag and possession limits, insofar as it was humanly possible to apportion wild game justly, were provided so everyone might have a share and still leave some behind. Who took more than his share took from all the others. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, it was the duty of anyone who knew of game law violations to report the violator to the nearest warden so the proper action could be taken. But how could Ted report Arthur Beamish's when Beamish was his guest? The boy still hadn't made a decision when, the next day, Loring Blade came in. The warden said quietly, I've been watching the grouse hunters in your camp. You have? Yes, and I arrested one of them this morning, a man named Beamish. He's killed 19 grouse that I know of, seven over anything he should have had in four days. Ted said reluctantly, He's killed 23. How do you know? Nails told me. Wish I had known that, but I think he'll toe the mark now. What did you do to him? He took him before Justice McAfee. Mac fined him $50 and the positive revocation of his license if he violates any more. But, but what? 
there's a $25 fine for every illegal grouse. As long as you were taking him in, you should have had him fined $175. Not him, Loring Blade declared. You can't hurt him too much by hitting him in the pocketbook. His hunting privileges are what he holds dear. It was, Ted decided, after the warden left, a smart way to do things. The penalty for breaking game laws should be harsh, but finding Arthur Beamish $175 would bother him less than a $10 fine might inconvenience a Stacy or a Crawford. However, Beamish's hunting privileges really meant something to him. At any rate, the warden's method worked. Nels, who lost none of his admiration for the grouse hunters, gave Ted a complete report at intervals. Nobody in the camp took more than the limit after Beamish was fined, and there was still another angle. Ted had always known that he and his father were in the minority. Sometimes it seemed that nobody except he and Al cared what happened to the Mahala, but now the boy was assured that others worked for its best interests, too. The grouse hunters had gone home, and for a whole week there would be nobody in camp. There was nothing to worry about in the immediate future. Al, as his last note indicated, was doing all right. The Beamish party, who'd really liked Nels, had expressed their satisfaction in more lavish tips, and for the first time in three years, Nels' family could get by for a while, even if he did not work. However, he could certainly work all through deer season. The Andersons might face a bleak new year but they would have a happy Christmas. Ted had decided to seize the week's interlude as a fine time to go over the camp from top to bottom, but there was little to do. Nels would never write a learned dissertation about Shakespeare or come up with a startling new aspect of the nuclear fission theory, but whoever hired him got all they paid for, plus a substantial bonus. Working by day, in Nels' opinion, meant working 24 hours, if that were necessary. The cabin was spotless. Even the blankets had been aired. With time heavy on his hands, Ted fretted. He collected the six grouse to which he was entitled and put them in the freezer. For lack of something else to do, he went twice more to the three sycamores near Glory Rock, the scene of Smokey Delbert's shooting. He didn't find anything, but he hadn't really expected to discover any new evidence or clues. Looking for them had helped kill time while he waited anxiously for the bear hunters. Deer were not especially hard to get, if all one wanted was venison. There were does and young deer that wouldn't even run from hunters. But the big old bucks, with acceptable racks of antlers, got big because they were wary and they were difficult to bring down. Woodcock were sporting, and who hunted grouse successfully had every right to call himself a hunter. Squirrels were fun, providing one hunted them with a rifle instead of a shotgun. But, unless one used dogs to bring them to bay, and it was against the law to use dogs on any big game in the Mahela, black bears were far and away the most difficult game of all. Keen-nosed and sharp-eared, they almost always knew when hunters were about. Wise, 
they were well aware of the best ways to preserve their own hides. As circumstances prescribed, they could slink like ghosts or run like horses, and they laid some heartbreaking trails. Fifty miles was no unusual distance for a black bear to cover in one day, and they were full of tricks. Ted himself had followed black bears on snow and come to where the trail ended abruptly. The bear had walked backwards, stepping exactly in the same tracks they had made running forward, and made a long sideways jump that always delayed their pursuer and sometimes baffled him. Some men who'd spent their lives in black bear country had yet to see their first one. It took hunters of the highest caliber to get them, and thus Ted looked forward to those who would occupy his camp. But while he waited, there was little else to do, and he spent some of his time in Lorton. Just another sleepy little town, for 49 weeks of the year, Lorton was almost feverishly preparing for its moment of glory. If it was not exactly the center of all eyes, due to its geographical position as the town nearest to Mahala, it was the center of deer hunting. Every room in its two hotels and three motels had long since been reserved, and any householder with a room to rent could have a choice of at least ten hunters. In the next few weeks, Lorton would see at least twice as many deer hunters as it had permanent residents. Its normally quiet streets would have a bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. Parking space would be at a premium. There would be crowds waiting in every eating place. Stores would sell more merchandise than they did at any other time of the year. And any Lortonite who knew anything at all about the Mahela, even if his knowledge was limited to how to get into it, and out of it again, could have a job guiding deer hunters if he wanted it. In addition, every camping ground in the Mahela would have its quota of trailers, tents, and hardy souls who either slept in cars or made their beds on the ground. Sometimes, in the event of heavy storms, these venturesome ones got into trouble and were trapped until snowplows or rescue parties reached them. But this fall, the weather had been mild, almost spring-like, and there was every indication that it would continue to do so. Twice, just after the grouse hunters left, and again four days later, Ted sent Tammy to Al. He would send him again just before deer season opened, for that was an uncertain time. There would be hunters everywhere, and no assurance as to what they would do. Horses, cattle, sheep leaves fluttering in the wind, and men, had all been mistaken for bucks with nice racks of antlers, and punctured accordingly with high-powered ammunition. If Tammy should be delayed and have to come back in daylight, there was no guarantee whatever that some trigger-happy hunter would not consider him a choice black and white deer. Stalking Al with plenty of everything he needed, meant that Tammy would not have to go out again until deer season ended. Ted spent the two days prior to the opening of bear season cutting more wood for the camp. On the afternoon before, he built and banked a fire in the heating stove so that the camp would be reasonably warm and dry when the hunters arrived. Then he prepared his supper and Tammy's and was ready for the knock on his door when it sounded. He opened the door, 
and blinked in astonishment. The man who stood before him was young, not much older than Ted himself, and very grave. He wore hunting clothes and hunting boots, but perhaps because they were new, they seemed somewhat ill-fitting. Strapped about his middle were two belts, one containing a knife with a blade at least a foot long, and the other supporting two enormous forty-five caliber revolvers. He was making every effort to appear nonchalant, but it was an effort so strained that the effect was a little ludicrous. His eyes brimmed with a lilting excitement and a vast anticipation. Mr. Harkness? Yes. I'm Alex Jackson. Oh, yes. Ted extended his hand. Glad to see you, Mr. Jackson. As you can see, Alex Jackson indicated the two revolvers. I'm ready for them. Ah. Are you going bear hunting with revolvers? Oh, no. Definitely not. I have my rifle, too. It's just that one must be prepared when the beasts charge. Ah. Uh, what do you say? I said. Oh, before I overlook it. Alex Jackson took out his wallet and counted out the $35 still due on the camp rental. Ted tried to collect his spinning thoughts. Expecting a seasoned, experienced hunter, he'd met instead a youngster who talked seriously about black bears charging. Or hadn't Ted heard correctly? He slipped the money into his pocket and looked sideways at his guest. If you follow me, I'll take you to the camp. Would you have a little time to talk? Of course. May I bring the fellows in? Certainly. The man turned to beckon, and somebody shut off the car's idling motor and flicked off its lights. Five more hunters came into the house, and Ted was introduced as they came. None were older than Alex Jackson. Two, Alex's brother Paul and a youngster named Philip Tarbox, looked as though they should be behind their high school desks rather than in a hunting camp. Alex Jackson turned with a smile. Now you know us. How do you like us? Fine, Ted murmured. Uh, how much bear hunting have you all done before? Alex Jackson's eyes were full of dreams. None of us have ever hunted any big game, but I've read all about it. You've never hunted? Not big game, Alex Jackson said modestly. You see, I just came of age last month and thus was able to handle my own affairs. But I've always wanted to hunt big game, especially bears. Do, do your folks know you're here? Paul and I haven't any, and I am now Paul's guardian. But the other fellow's parents do. Yes, of course, and they were glad to have them in for my charge. I've been counselor for three summers at Camp Monawami. You needn't worry about our ability to handle firearms. We've all hunted rabbits. But I would like to ask your advice. Sure. Ted felt weak. Philip, Steve, Arnold, and Wilson are armed with nothing but shotguns. Do you think I should return to the town through which we just passed 
Buy them rifles and revolvers? Gosh, no. I'm worried, Alex Jackson said seriously. Grimshaw, in his Bears of the North, says that when the beasts charge, Grimshaw was writing about grizzlies. These are black bears. Oh, Alex Jackson elevated his brows. You can say definitely that they will not charge? Nobody can say that. They're wild animals. I thought so. Alex Jackson seemed vastly relieved. Will a shotgun halt them when they charge? Oh, yes. Ted wished he could sink through the floor. Expecting hunters, he had his hands full of what, very literally, were babes in the woods. But they had a great dream and a great hope, and regardless of who told them that not once in a thousand times will even a wounded black bear charge a hunter, they wouldn't believe it because they did not care to believe it. They had come bear hunting to live dangerously. Alex Jackson nodded happily. Thank you very much. Now, will you please show us the camp? Follow me. As he drove up the Lorton Road, Ted gave himself over to his own grim thoughts. Obviously, there was much more to building and renting camps than met the casual eye. One never knew who was coming and what they'd do. Now, he was certain only that this crew of naive hopefuls should not venture into the Mahala alone. He wasn't even sure that they would be permitted to stay in camp without supervision, but he'd risk that much for at least one night. He parked in front of the camp, waited for his guests, and admitted them. Just what I'd hoped for, Alex Jackson exclaimed. Semi-private surroundings. Delightful. Ted asked, Can you handle the stoves and everything? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. But perhaps will you tell us where we have the best chance of encountering bears? Oh, I'll do better than that. I'll show you. Oh, that's good of you. Would you care to start at daylight? I'll be here. We'll be ready. On arriving at the camp a half hour before daylight the next morning, Ted saw that it was not burned down and that his young guests had made no obvious blunders. Rather, with breakfast eaten and the dishes stacked away, they seemed to be doing pretty well for themselves. But even though they knew what to do around camp, the fact remained that none of them had ever hunted big game. Ted exchanged greetings and looked out of the window. Renting hunting camps might be a nice way to earn a living, but there must be easier ones. The very fact that he'd rented his camp to them implied an obligation. Six hunters who knew exactly what to do had little enough chance of getting a bear. These youngsters had one in a thousand. But if there was any way to do it, Ted still had to offer them their money's worth, and he considered himself responsible for them. Sending them into the Mahala alone, probably, and at the least, meant that they would get lost. Ready? he asked. Let's go! Alex Jackson said happily. Ted led the six into the lightning morning. Since there was no snow, it was futile even to think of tracking a bear. Without any experience, these youngsters had no hope whatever 
of staging a successful drive, or putting four of their number in favorable shooting positions while the rest beat their way through the forest and tried to drive a bear past them. Only Alex Jackson and his brother were armed with rifles. Therefore, they were the only two who had even a slight chance of getting a bear, should one be sighted at long range. But the possibilities of even seeing a bear were so slim anyway that Ted had not wanted Alex to buy rifles for the other four. There was just one faint hope. This was the season of the great harvest. Frost had opened the pods on the beech trees, and beech nuts had fallen like rain into the forest litter below. Tiny things, they were in vast quantity. Deer, bears, squirrels, rabbits, raccoons, foxes. Practically every creature in the Mahela was spending almost full time filling itself with beech nuts or storing them away. Winter that would bring hunger and lean bellies, was just ahead, and, well, the wild things knew it. If Ted posted his crew at favorable places among the beech trees, and if they sat absolutely quiet, one or more of them might at least see a bear. Very definitely there was not much of a chance, but there was none at all if they did anything else. Al had told of a lot of bears in Carter Valley, and Ted took his hunters there. He left them in various strategic places where scraped and pawed leaves told their own story of being turned aside so that hungry creatures might partake of the beech nuts hidden beneath. Lacking snow, there was no foolproof way to tell just what had been scraping or pawing, but something had, and it might be bears. After the rest had been posted, Ted took Alex Jackson out to the rim of Carter Valley. The slope pitched sharply downwards and rose just as sharply on the other side. But here the valley was shallow, with perhaps a hundred yards to its floor. It was possibly another hundred yards from rim to rim, and the opposite rim was almost treeless. About a half mile away, across the treeless slope, was a crumbling slag pile. Years ago, a vein of coal had been discovered here and mined as long as it paid off. But it had ceased to pay and had been abandoned long before Ted was born. Only the tunnel and the slag pile were left. The opposite slope was covered with beech brush that would be jungle thick to anyone within it. But from this vantage point, eyes could penetrate the brush. Any bear going up or down the valley and one might do just that, would certainly travel through the beech brush, and any hunter posted here would surely have some good shooting. Ted turned to Alex Jackson. You stay here. Here? Yes. Move as little as possible and make no noise. Watch the beech brush cross there. Sooner or later, a bear's going through it. I'll, I'll pick you up tonight. Righto. That night, the bear hunters were still reasonably happy. All had seen squirrels and feeding grouse. Four had seen deer, and three had watched turkeys feeding. Paul Jackson had thought he'd seen a bear, but it turned out to be a black squirrel running on the opposite side of a fallen tree, 
with only its bobbing back appearing now and then. For the next few days, the sextet stayed quite happy. Then deer, squirrels, and turkey began to pall. They were proud bear hunters, and so far, they hadn't even seen a bear's track. The last day, disappointment was in full reign. They'd not only told their friends they were going to get a bear, but, Ted suspected, Alex Jackson had done considerable talking about the way bears charged hunters. Nevertheless, they all followed Ted back into Carter Valley, and the five younger hunters took the places assigned to them. It was the best way. They'd occupied these same stands for six days without seeing any bears. But sooner or later, the law of averages would send one along. With Alex Jackson in tow, Ted started back toward the valley's rim. Alex Jackson touched his arm. I say, would you mind if I just wandered about on my own? Not if that's the way you want it. Alex Jackson had arrived so full of dreams and spirit that now he seemed so despondent. I, I won't get lost, I, and I may find something, he said quietly. Good luck, Ted replied gently. Ted wandered gloomily out to the rim of the valley and sat down in the place Alex Jackson had been occupying. Not every hunter can leave the woods with the full bag of game, but Ted felt that, somehow, he had failed this eager young group. His guests might at least have seen a bear. Carrying no rifle, he was the guide, and with nothing special to do, Ted basked in the warm sunshine. An hour later, his eye was caught by motion down in the valley. Coming out of the semi-doze into which he had fallen, he looked sharply at it and gasped. A bear, not a monstrous creature, but no cub, it weighed perhaps 250 pounds, was coming through the beech brush. It was about 200 yards down the valley and halfway up the other slope, and it was not in the slightest hurry. It stopped to sniff at some interesting thing it discovered and turned to retrace its step a few yards. Then it came on. Ted groaned inwardly. A rifleman posted here could have an easy shot, and Alex Jackson had sat here idly for six days. The bear came on for another sixty yards, lay down beside a huge boulder, and prepared itself for a nap. Ted crawled away. Bears had a remarkable sense of scent and good hearing, but very weak eyes. This one couldn't see him. If it smelled him, certainly it would not be where it was. If he was very careful, it might not hear him. As soon as Ted thought he was far enough from the valley's rim, he rose and ran back to where he'd left Paul Jackson. The alert youngster heard him coming and had his rifle ready, but its muzzle was pointed at the ground. Paul Jackson lacked experience, but not sense. He wasn't going to shoot at anything until he knew what was in front of his rifle. Ted came close and whispered, Come on, I've got one spotted. You have? Take it easy and quiet. He won't be there if you don't. 
Nearing the valley's rim, Ted dropped back to a crawl. He peered at the boulder and breathed easily again. The bear had not moved. He put his mouth very close to Paul Jackson's ear. There he is. Where? Just to the right of that big boulder. I see him. Paul Jackson knelt, rested his right elbow on his right knee, raised his rifle, and Ted groaned silently. The youngster's stance was perfect, but so was his buck fever. The rifle shook like an aspen leaf in a high wind. It blasted, and Ted saw the bullet kick up leaves twenty feet to one side of the sleeping bear. The bear sprang up as though launched from a catapult, and kept on springing. Straight up the slope he went, and across the nearly treeless summit. Ted shouted, Shoot! Did you say shoot? Paul Jackson was still in a daze, bewildered by this thing that could not be but was. The bear was 400 yards away, and when he raised his rifle a second time, shot, and succeeded only in speeding the running beast on its way. He lowered his rifle and muttered, I guess I'm not a very good hunter. Nobody connects every time. The bear was running full speed toward the old mine tunnel. Surprised, its first thought had been to put distance between the hunter and itself, but now it was planning very well. The old tunnel had one outlet that led into a dense thicket of laurel. Certainly, the bear knew all about this, and he would go into the thicket. Definitely, he was lost to the young hunter. Then, within the mouth of the old tunnel itself, another rifle cracked spitefully. The running bear swapped ends, rolled over, and lay still. Alex Jackson emerged from the tunnel. Twenty minutes later, when Paul and Ted reached him, he was sitting quietly beside his trophy, and looking at it with unbelieving eyes. Oh, but they were wonderfully happy eyes. Long ago, he had dreamed his dream. Now, and probably it never had been before and never would be again in hunting annals, he had seen it come true. He looked dreamily up at Ted and Paul, and his voice was proof that, whether it's bringing down a bear, shooting a hole in one, or playing a perfect game of chess, any dream can be as bright as the dreamer makes it. It charged, he said. End of chapter 9